Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 144 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Margaret Pooler, research leader for floral and nursery plants at the U.S. National Arboretum in Washington, D.C., all about flowering cherry trees. The plant profile is on grape hyacinths, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with the last word on crabgrass prevention from Jeff Rugg, author of Greener View Gardening. This episode, we're joined by Dr. Margaret Pooler, research leader for floral and nursery plants at the U.S. National Arboretum. She is a returning guest on the Garden DC podcast. She was on episode 119 talking all about crepe myrtles. And this episode, we have her back talking all about cherry trees. Welcome back. Thank you. Happy to be here, Kathy. Great to have you again, Dr. Pooler. And since that was last September, and it's been about six months since we've had you on, I'm just going to ask for any updates or anything. And if anybody wants to listen to Dr. Margaret uh, Pooler's career trajectory and a little bit more about her personally, they can go back and listen to episode 119. So anything happening um, since that episode in your crepe myrtle breeding or any other big developments? Um, no big developments in crepe myrtle. The only big change since September now is that it's spring. And so anyone who's in the horticulture industry or a field knows what spring means to a horticulturist. So lots going on right now with everything in bloom and everything warming up. So busy time. Yes, indeed. And I was going to say fall is almost as busy for most of us, but it's it's kind of like your second spring. Um, but spring is a special crazy busy on top of that. Absolutely. Especially if you're doing any kind of plant breeding work with flowering cherries or anything that's in bloom right now, it's kind of a open a window that you have to meet or you have to wait a whole nother year. Mm, so let's get into that because there, it is a finite time that the cherries are blooming. And we're specifically talking, of course, about the ornamental cherries, not the fruiting cherries. Yes. Although, you know, it's significant. You mentioned the, the fruiting cherries. One of the things that makes it so rewarding to work on the ornamental cherries is that they're actually in the same genus as the fruiting cherries that we eat, as well as um, peaches, nectarines, almonds. And so a lot of the um, work, the research that's been done on those species is directly translatable to the work that we're doing on the ornamental cherries. So we can sort of borrow from work that's already been done to help us along. Hmm. Yeah. And I've actually had on my weeping hygiene cherry, tiny little cherry fruits on there very occasionally. Absolutely. In, in fact, if you go down to the tidal basin in a few weeks, maybe a month um, after they've finished blooming, you can a lot of times see little tiny green fruits that have developed and those will um, fade to kind of a dark purple, almost black color, but the birds will usually take them before anyone really notices that they're there. 
So yeah, most, a lot of the um, ornamental cherries do actually produce fruit, but it's not the kind of fruit that we normally eat. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the birds um, consuming some of them because I did try one myself from that weeping hygiene and I have to say, mm, very sour. <laughs> yep, leave it for the birds and the squirrels. Exactly. And so are they viable from the seeds from that fruit? Yes, they are. In fact, if any of the listeners are, have, um, especially the single flowered cherries growing in their yards, you've probably seen little tiny um, prunus seedlings growing up around that plant. Um, so yeah, the, those seeds um, do set viable um, seedlings, that they are viable seeds. Interesting, because I had thought most of the ornamental cherries that we're growing in home landscapes are grafted. Is that not the case? They are grafted. That is true. So, so that means that the what you're seeing on the top of the plant is not the same as what's down in the roots. But um, that doesn't mean that what is growing on the top isn't going to produce fertile fruit and fertile seeds. So yeah, two kind of two different things. Mm. And so if you let those seedlings grow or potted them up and set them aside, you would get a similar plant or would it be a different one? Yeah, you would get a similar plant. It wouldn't be the exact same genetic um, replica of the parent plant, just like um, kids are not the same genetic replica of their parents, but they do have similarities. So yeah, you would get uh, these seedlings that you'd harvest would be what we call segregating for various traits. Wow. And so is that how you're doing some of the breeding is selecting some of those scions from the seedlings or are you doing grafting or how, how are you creating new cherry trees at the U.S. National Arboretum? Yeah, well, we're using a, a number of different techniques. So some of what we do is just straight kind of old fashioned breeding where you think of um, where you take a flower and you apply pollen from one plant to the um, stigma of another um, so just to combine traits of interest, like say we want to take the large size of flower from one and the disease resistance from another plant, we make a cross between those, we grow out all the resulting seedlings, and we select among those for something that now has both of those traits that we want, the large flowers plus the disease resistance. And then we can continue that process with crossing back to either parent to get the traits that we want. So that's kind of the traditional way of breeding that we're still using a lot of because it still works. But we're also um, just starting to get into some of the more modern breeding techniques. Um, you've maybe heard of gene editing. So that's something that's um, been used more in some of the non-ornamental crops. But um, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of technology from other species that we can translate into the ornamental cherries. And so we're looking at the possibility of using gene editing. Um, the listeners, you probably heard of CRISPR technology. So that's what we're talking about with gene editing. It's where you can actually go in. If you know enough about the DNA sequences, you can go in and cut out a, a part of a gene and insert another gene for something like disease resistance. Um, and so instead of changing the entire tree, you can just change that one thing to make it now resistant instead of susceptible to a disease. Fascinating. And that acronym CRISPR, that's C-R-I-S-P-R, no E, correct? Correct. Yeah. Hmm. 
So if you want to do some more research on the CRISPR process. Now, can you take, you're taking cherries to cherries, I, I imagine, but can you breed in any of the relatives or bring in any other genetics? Yeah, that's an interesting. So if you look even broader than the genus prunus, which is what the flowering cherries and the edible cherries are all in, if you go out that to the whole family, which is rosaceae, then that opens it up to a lot more um, plants, including or a lot of the ornamental plants, but also things like apples and um, strawberries and um, all the brambles, the blackberries and raspberries. So there's a lot more technology that we can get from and genomic research that we can get from those crops too. So that, that really opens up the kinds of um, genetic knowledge that we have from, that we can use towards the flowering cherry research. And so let's talk in general about cherry trees and their care. Um, and then we'll get back to some of those specific um, introductions in cherry trees that the U.S. National Arboretum has uh, added to our market. Um, so first, planting tips. So it's a prunus. I imagine it needs well-draining soils in full sun. Uh, what are the best conditions to grow a cherry tree in? So cherry trees are sort of particular. They're, um, you know, everyone knows they're, they're so beautiful in the spring, but um, they can get prone to a number of different disease and pest problems. So they do like full, um, full sun. That means six to even eight hours of sun. They, most varieties like a very well-drained soil, but not um, totally dry. They're not very drought tolerant, um, as well as good soil fertility. Um, they like kind of an open area. The, the things that they tend to cause problems are just excessive moisture, whether it's excessive moisture in the soil or in the air because they're crowded and, um, you know, or have a lot of high humidity. So yeah, if you can give them an open site with some sun um, and a, a good well-drained soil, that's gonna be your best bet. And I would consider planting kind of high. So when you're taking it either bare root or out of the container from the nursery or garden center or wherever you have purchased it, um, do you kind of mound the soil a little bit up for it in our region in the Mid-Atlantic? Good question. Yeah. So that's more dependent on the soil type that you have. If you have a pretty heavy clay soil that just doesn't drain that well, you're going to want to make sure you don't um, plant it too deep. And that means, um, like you said, you want the, the top of the soil that you got it from, whether it was bare root or container grown, to never be lower than the soil line. And usually a little bit up, like an inch or so, maybe a couple inches above the soil line is going to be your best bet. And then, um, of course, probably most listeners know this, but not over mulching. So a couple inches of mulch is great. Um, keep it away from the trunk, though. Don't mound it right up to the trunk. Um, but don't don't just pile on, you know, five inches or six inches of, of mulch and keep on adding more every year because that's going to contribute to some of those excessive moisture problems. Hmm. I imagine the cherry trees that are around the tidal basin are really stressed because they're obviously close to a water source. Um, and then there's some flooding areas there as well. Yes, yeah, some of them are. But, you know, if you think about it, there are trees there that are 100 years old. So or more. So 
um, you know, they're not that stressed, I think. Plus, they get really good care from the Park Service horticulturists. You know, those are extra special trees that they are looking after very well. Um, so, you know, they're like I said, if they're if they're living for a hundred plus years, then they they can't be that stressed. Hmm. Yeah, it's good to know that they're in good care. And one of the exhibits happening now at the U.S. National Arboretum is a journey to see some of the ancient cherry trees. And I was going to ask what the average uh, mature length of a cherry tree lifespan is, because a few of those shown in that exhibit um, in the photos from that man's journey to uh, Japan to see them. One is 1,500 years old and another is 2,000 years old, which I think is astounding. That is astounding. I, I am, whenever I see those and see pictures, it's, it really is amazing. Um, and I think part of it just depends on what, you know, a lot of times here in the U.S., we take out trees maybe earlier than they would in other places, um, partly just for liability issues. You know, if there's a tree that's got <clears throat> excuse me, that's losing some of its branches or has a threat to lose a branch, we'll just take it out just because, um, especially if it's in the public, like you can imagine a cherry tree on the tidal basin, if it's got a branch that's about to drop, we're not going to keep that branch on there. We're going to cut it off. So, um, so part of it just depends on sort of um, the culture and how we think of trees and public spaces. Um, but in the U.S., you know, in a home landscape, a lot of times you hear, you know, a cherry tree might be 25 years, might be a decent lifespan for you to expect from it um, before it just, you end up taking it out because of it's got, it's succumbed to so many different diseases and stresses and, um, you know, it's dropping its leaves in July or something. So um, I think in the average home landscape, it might be 25, 30, 40 years, whereas um the tidal basin, as we see, some are 100 years old. And then in some of the places that you saw um, in that exhibit, you know, they can be over a thousand years old. Mm. Yeah, I, w I had heard 25 as the average. So that gives me a little hope <laughs> for <laughs> a little bit longer for my own cherry tree. And I've also heard that they're very shallow rooted in that they don't like anything planted amongst their root zone. Is that correct? Yeah, they um, tend to not like even in their root zone, but also even against their trunk. They don't, if you damage the trunk, um, say you're mowing your lawn and you get a little too close, um, <clears throat> a lot of times you will see it'll start to either sucker from that, that is send out um, shoots, vegetative shoots, or sometimes you'll get um, this thing we call gamosis, which is actually just sort of the sap coming out as a thick um, kind of gummy thing from the wound site. So yeah, they really don't like to be um, hit too hard, either on their roots or their lower trunk. Mm, yeah, I've seen a lot of cases of that. It kind of looks like this hardened resin that's dripping from the bark. Um, and it's, it's sad to see that sometimes. Yeah, and that can be caused also by insect damage, too. It's not just that, um, you know, someone got too rough with it. It's It can be caused by a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and our recent cicada uh, brood X or brood 10 um, visits, I noticed a lot of those little slits all on the cherry trees in, in our neighborhood. So we did lose some blooms the following year to, due to that. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, the cicadas, you know, it's kind of a temporary um, damage because most of the 
branches that they hit were pretty small, like, you know, pencil size or smaller. So um, it was maybe a one year hit. And now we can't even see much evidence that they were there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And luckily only every 17 years. So don't have to worry too much more about that. Yeah. Luckily or not luckily. Some people, (laughs) myself included, kind of like them. So (laughs) yeah. And you could, you could follow around different broods and, and visit different ones. That's always fun too. Um, so you alluded to cutting off a branch that might be breaking breaking or damaged. Um, so let's talk a little bit about pruning. And you talked about the suckers that could come up from the roots. And those might be coming from below the graft point, right? Those could be, yeah. So if it's a grafted cherry, so um, like you alluded to, most of the plants that you're going to buy from a garden center are going to be grafted. That is, there's a the plant on top is not the same as the roots. And that's done primarily just because you can get a saleable plant faster that way. Um, A lot of the cherry varieties, though, are capable of um, doing what we call own rooting. And that is where you you can actually take a cutting and stick it and it will form its own roots. So um, that's the way we propagate most of the plants at the Arboretum. But um, for the commercial ones that you buy, most of them are going to be on a graft. So when you prune a plant, um, anything that's down at the base that's coming out of the base of the plant is probably going to be that rootstock. And so that you're going to cut off no matter what. Um, most flowering cherries don't require heavy pruning. They're not, um, it's, it's not like there's some a shrub that you just need to cut back every year. The only things you'd want to prune would be if you have a branch that's dying because of a disease or, you know, some kind of a canker or something, or if it's broken, you definitely want to cut that back. If you see branches that are crossing or um, what we call water spouts, where they're just coming straight up, those you could trim off. And then anything that you need to do to just sort of improve air circulation. Um, But otherwise, there's not heavy pruning that really ever needs to be done. Like you don't need to top it, um, anything like that. So they're pretty easy care in terms of um, pruning. Yeah. Hmm. And I do see sometimes on the weeping varieties, people will kind of give it that bowl haircut. Um, Do you recommend doing that or just leave it alone? I do see that. That's, that's funny that you mentioned that because I've, I've actually seen some of those. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it's actually deer that are doing that. So sometimes you think the homeowner did it, but the deer will come and actually eat off all those lower branches. So sometimes it's, you know, don't blame the homeowner for, for pruning. It might actually be deer, but um, really it depends on what you're looking for. But a lot of times the, the weeping trees, their, their real beauty is the fact that they will weep and be pendulous all the way to the ground, which is just such a beautiful effect. And sometimes there's a few at the Arboretum that you can actually, it's almost like it forms a little tent that you can go and sit under and you're sort of surrounded um, all the way to the ground by these branches. So if if I had one, I probably would not prune it, um, prune it up so that it looks, you know, like a little cap or something. I would let them just grow all the way down to the ground because that's kind of really why you planted the weeping tree in the first place, usually. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And if I had a bigger property, I would have so many more weeping plants, not just of cherry trees, but I just love the weeping habit and that look. Right. Same. Yeah. So gorgeous. 
And so we talked about um, pruning out the suckers and pruning off anything damaged. Um, how about if we wanted we wanted to graft it? Um, what's the best time to take a cutting and to do that? So grafting is not the easiest thing to do. So there are people who are who do it professionally, and even their percent of success is seldom one hundred percent. So um, if you wanted to graft, though, there are several ways you can do a bud graft where you take a dormant bud in the winter and you graft that on. Um, there are some, um, sometimes you can take a growing scion or a, you know, growing, actively growing shoot and graft that. So really, um, it depends on the, the plant and what you have as rootstock. But usually as a, as a homeowner as a non-professional i i personally i wouldn't try any grafting at home just because my chance of success is going to be so low that i'd go with something else i'd try rooting it before i try grafting it honestly Mm -hmm. and then for rooting cuttings is that best done in the spring during the growing phase yeah with flowering cherries they're they root best um i'd say when they're after they've sent out their new shoots their new growth you'll see that nice green new growth coming from the older growth. Once that starts to harden off just a little bit, so not not when it gets really woody, but when it's gotten so that it doesn't just flop over, um, that's usually the best time to take um, cuttings for for cherry rooting. And then for those, you can try to root it just you know like you would, I don't know, a house plant. Even you can just stick it in the commercial like rootone or one of those um, you know rooting compounds, and then. Um, just stick it and make sure you keep it with under lots of moisture, good humidity. And there's a good chance that you'd be successful with that. Hmm, I think I might experiment a little with that this year. And so for some final care questions, we talked a little bit about watering that they don't like to be totally dried out, but they also don't like to sit in wet. Um, do you recommend a drip irrigation system or like one of those tree diapers you put around the trees? Um, yeah, any works as long as you're getting it enough and deep. At, so it's much better to water it um, a, a lot, but not very often rather than watering it often, but not very much. So it likes to have a sort of deep, full um, soaking less often so that you can, that'll help encourage the roots to go deeper instead of just staying at the surface if all they're finding is water at the surface. Um, so either method works as long as you're um, getting it deep enough and long enough. Hmm. And for those growing at the Arboretum, are those getting any supplemental water on the landscape there? Yeah, some do. We do have um, irrigation for a lot of our plants there. Um, the ones in the cherry tree are in the cherry fields are primarily just overhead irrigation. We just have sprinklers that we turn on connected to spigots and turn those on. Um, so, and that's not ideal if, you know, ideally you wouldn't be soaking the leaves every time, but it's no different than when it rains. So, um, it, it works. It's certainly better than not watering them at all. Mm -hmm. Especially if we get that six to eight weeks of drought in the summertime. Exactly. Yep. Mm. And how about fertilizing? Do you do any supplemental fertilizing for those? At the Arboretum, we don't. Um, the, where a lot of them are planted, the soil is pretty, it's, you know, has other trees around. So there's, it's pretty rich already in organic material. So they don't really need a lot of supplemental fertilizer. 
Um, in the homeowner situation, they might be getting enough just because if people are fertilizing their lawn or, you know, they might, the trees might be getting enough just from that. So generally you shouldn't need to fertilize it, but I would get a soil test. That would be, probably be the best way to tell. Um, and then, and see, that would be a way to tell, do you actually need to fertilize? Hmm, good advice, especially getting that soil test just to even know. Yeah. And so diseases and pests, I hate to bring up the negative, but I do know that the prunus family in particular is susceptible to a lot of problems. They are poor things. Um, yeah, there's so many. And that's, you know, one thing as a breeder that keeps us having a job, I guess, because there's always something else that we can try to, you know, breed, breed for improvement. So, um, yeah, there's both biotic and abiotic stresses that that prunus seem to be susceptible to. So in terms of the biotic stresses, those can be things like um, various microorganisms like bacterial, fungal, even viral diseases, um, all kinds of insects. You know, you've probably seen the tent caterpillars on them, which won't necessarily kill them, but um, it just, you know, doesn't look so good. Same with things like um, the Japanese beetles, which tend to love the prunus and even the rosaceae. Um, again, it usually won't kill the plant, but it does just add to the stress um, of it. Um, hmm. And then even, you know, deer, we talked about deer before, that's another biotic stressor. So those can um, sometimes eat the leaves, obviously, but even the rubbing on the trunk. So sometimes um, younger prunus have these really nice, beautiful, straight, smooth trunks. And that's what um, the male deer love to rub their antlers on when they're younger. So yeah, they get, they get hit from all sides by biotic stressors. Hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the, the tent worms. Cause those are pretty easy to get rid of, like just kind of poke a stick in there and open it up and then the birds come in and take care of it for you. Exactly. Yeah. So those, I don't consider a, a deal breaker for them. And so you talked about disease resistance is one of the things you're looking for in your uh, breeding of cherry trees. What other aspects and benefits are you looking for in your breeding program? So, yeah, we're looking for disease resistance. We're also looking for, I mean, the, the main objective is to kind of, is to increase the genetic diversity of, of flowering cherries that we sort of know and cultivate because most people, you know, we're very familiar with the Yoshino cherries that are down at the tidal basin. We're familiar with the later flowering Kwanzan cherries, which will be coming out, you know, maybe in a few weeks. Um, but there's so many other species and varieties that are out there that really haven't been used um, and are not used in the landscape in the landscape that we want to incorporate into our breeding program to bring some other traits in. And some of those traits are things like um, differences in flower color. Um, you know, we're all familiar with the white and pink, but there's so many stage at different colors in between there. Um, flower time, um, and specifically we're looking at more varieties of the really late flowering ones because, um, you know, there's a, over a month of window that we can see flowering cherries and we sort of get used to, we see the ones on the tidal basin and then that's kind of it. We forget about them, but so we're trying to see if we can breed specifically for later blooming varieties. Um, the flower, the number of petals from the single petals to the doubles, to the kind of chrysanthemum types, um, plant habit is a big thing that we're looking into because, 
Um, if we could breed, for example, a smaller flowering cherry or one that's really compact or columnar, um, that would really allow people who live in different landscapes to plant them where they couldn't before, because not everyone has room to plant a huge spreading Kwanzaa or um, Yoshino tree in their yard. So if we could have some that were sort of more columnar, um, that would allow a lot more um, landscapes that you could plant these in. Um, and then things like fall color, ornamental bark, those are all just sort of added things that, that could also just add year-round interest. Hmm. That sounds wonderful, especially the columnar um, shape to them. And that will be, you know, something you could put even in a very large container, say, on a deck or patio. Yeah, I like that. I hadn't even gone there. Yeah, I like that. Hmm. The other thing I was going to add to that wish list, if I can put a little bug in your ear, Dr. Pooler, is um, something that makes them deer resistant, something in their genetics, maybe. I don't know what that would be, mm -hmm. a bitter taste, something like that. And then you talked about the variegation and color changing. Um, how about um, a little bit more frost resistant? Because when we do get that late frost and, you know, that can kind of zap some of those blooms. Yeah, yeah. And that is, um, that's in the whole category of abiotic stress. So those are things um, besides living things, things like um, drought stress or water stress or compacted soils, or as you said, cold stress or heat stress. So um, you're right that a late frost can just totally obliterate the blossoms. But the good thing is, is it rarely kills the plant. So even though, yeah, it does ruin the effect and they kind of turn brown and um, until they fall off, it doesn't look very good. But usually the plant will survive. There, there are a few exceptions. There are some um, just that are a whole, the whole plant is just not um, tolerant of really cold conditions. Um, but yeah, so the, it, it is tough. Cold tolerance is a tough one because there's so many different factors that contribute to cold tolerance, whether it's a late frost that is, or maybe it's a harsh winter that, you know, too much time at zero degrees can also contribute to stress. So that's a tough one. That's not something that we could, you know, gene edit a single trait and make it work like we could, mm -hmm. with, for example, insect resistance or possibly even your deer resistance. That's, you know, I like that idea. Hmm. Some type of, yeah, we'll, we'll keep on working and that mm -hmm. definitely keeps you employed as they say. And <laughs> So they're native to Japan and Asia, obviously. So mm -hmm. they're in a pretty tough climate already that we're getting them from. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And fortunately, that's the thing with a lot of um, plants that we've brought over from Asia. The reason is because it's a similar climate. And so a lot of things, a lot of plants just work directly from there. If we plant them here, they, they work well. So um, it is a similar climate and a similar um, kind of stressors that they have in their native environment as they do here. Mm -hmm. And I was just hearing a speaker the other day talking about how um, parts of Asia and parts of the Mid-Atlantic and, and southern U.S., how we had been affected similarly during the Ice Age um, versus in Europe. So that's why we have such similar plant families in China and Japan and at the same latitude, longitude um, as we do in the mid-Atlantic states. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it is kind of fascinating when you look at sort of the um, corresponding species in the same genus across oceans. Yeah. Hmm. 
So um, I visited the Arboretum and saw the bracing technique that was being done on some of the cherry trees in the collection there. And that's not the new introduction of cherry trees. That's saving and maintaining the health of some of the older ones. Can you describe that? Yeah, isn't that fascinating? So if you haven't been to the Arboretum, um, this is something you can see even if you miss the cherry blossom festival or the cherry blossoms in bloom. If you feel like going when there aren't such big crowds at the Arboretum, um, either go on a weekday or wait until the peak spring is done. But you'll see um, near the herb garden, there's two big, huge weeping cherry trees. They're just beautiful, beautiful trees. And so, um, you know, as they're not going to last forever. And at some point they would become possibly a hazard because some of the, the limbs are low and possibly um, could become unstable. So we are, we, look to some experts who agreed to come and um, do this bracing technique where they just, they put up these huge um, poles or sticks or whatever, you know, pieces of wood that are just holding up these branches. So um, one of the, our, my colleagues at work described it as sort of when we get old, we, we need a little bit more support. And so that's like, you know, someone coming in and helping us to support us as we get old so that we can still stay around and enjoy things and, and not fall over. So um, that's kind of what they're, what is going on with those. Yeah, I thought those, they almost look like crutches. They're so beautiful, those little braces and the knot work. And I know that they had to source um, native black locust trees and able to create those. Yeah, because those are much more rot resistant. We couldn't just, you know, take a two by four and throw it on and call it a day. It's a very, um, it's as much of an art as it is a science, um, you know, steeped in history and, and, you know, centuries of practicing and figuring out what works the best. So we're very lucky that we got to have that actually come and be demonstrated on our trees at the Arboretum. And I do know that the same Japanese artisans who did that also were working at Dumbarton Oaks later in the week. So uh, people can visit those examples as well. Yep. Yep. And it's probably not something that you'd be able to do at home or that you'd even want to. It's sort of more to just show um, just different, how different cultures uh, manage their trees and, and what different possibilities are. It's probably not something that we would start doing on all of our trees at the Arboretum, for example, but it's- No, it's kind of... I can't imagine that. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Definitely for special trees only. Yep. Um, I could see some of the ones at the Tidal Basin getting that too. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So in your 26 years plus of flower cherry breeding, uh, your unit has introduced four flowering cherries to the trade. Um, so let's go down those in order of their introduction to the market and maybe talk a little bit about their traits. Uh, the first is Prunus Dreamcatcher. Yeah, the first one that we introduced um, was Prunus Dreamcatcher. And this is, um, if you know the cherry Okami, which is one of the really early flowering um, pink ones. It's actually a seedling from Okami. So you'll see a lot of similarities between Dreamcatcher and Okami in terms of bloom time. Um, the flower color is similar. Um, so Dreamcatcher is just a really good early flowering. Um, it has kind of a, a typical rounded shape. Um, just a good, it does well in production for nurseries. Um, so yeah, that was that was the first one that we 
we actually had it to a state that we could release it. Um, the next one is, is probably one of our better ones because it's just, it's so different than anything that's out there. And that's um, First Lady. So that was the first one. We, we decided that we would start naming our cherries in a series um, named after First Ladies. So, um, and that's partly because of the role that the First Lady Helen Taft had in bringing the flowering cherries trees to the U.S. back in 1912. Um, but it's also a kind of a nice way to, to make sure that people know that these trees are from the National Arboretum, from the USDA. So, so the first one um, in the series is named First Lady, and that's one that has a lot of, um, there's a species called Prunus campanulata, which is, um, has the darkest pink flower that's out there. They're also very early flowering, and in this um, climate, they're not even cold hardy, but when we crossed it um, with other plants, then it, it is cold hardy. So First Lady is, again, a very early blooming plant. Um, it does have a much more upright habit. I wouldn't call it columnar by any means, but it's much more upright, um, and it has the darkest flowers of any cultivar that's out there. So you really, when you see it in bloom, you'll know which that it's First Lady. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I yeah. was going to comment that I saw a row of them recently planted at Brookside Gardens in Wheaton, Maryland, and they are striking. They're like actual cherry color is how I would describe it, like dark pink cherry and very upright as you as you described. So it makes a great L.A. or line of them. But also, I think they were the first ones to bloom. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was, I'm glad you saw those because the ones at Brookside, I think are probably the best planting and certainly one of the earliest plantings. They do a fantastic job there with um, just where they cited those, um, how the spacing, they really just, they, they did them perfectly, I think. So um, yeah, that's one of the pictures that I use in talks is the one that um, Phil Normandy took of the plants at Brookside. So um, those are, yeah, First Lady is great. Um, I'm seeing it used a lot more in the DC area just because of that. It's, it's easy to grow. It's um, flowers very early and it's really distinctive. So, and then the next on your list is Helen Taft. Yeah. So Helen Taft, another one named after the, our First Ladies. Um, and Helen Taft was, as I mentioned, the really one, one of the people who was instrumental in bringing the flowers, the flowering cherries to the U.S. way back in 1912. So um, we decided to honor her with naming this one after her. And Helen Taft is basically, it's a pink flowered Yoshino cherry. And, and by pink, I mean, it's actually pink. It's not like, you know, some of them, there's maybe a tinge of pink and you're like, oh, is that, does that look pink to you? Maybe a little bit. This is actually, there's no question. It's, it's pink, but it behaves and looks like a Yoshino cherry. It's got a pretty strong growth. It's um, um, a medium blooming. It's not one of the really early ones. It's not the late. It blooms around the same time as the tidal basin ones, but it's clearly a very um, solid pink color. So we like that one just because it's people, can, you know, they know what to expect from it because it's, they know if they know how to grow a Yoshino cherry, they know how to grow that one. Um, but it has the unique pink color. And then the last one that we introduced is actually not, um, you can't grow it in the DC area um, because it's not cold hardy. It's a straight Prunus campanulata um, mm -hmm. and it's called Abigail Adams. 
it, we released it though um, because it's a the only double flowering Prunus campanulata that we know of. And so it was released more just so that other breeders could have easy access to it. Um, they could just, you know, there's no protection or um, intellectual property rights associated with it. They can use it as they want. Or if you're in a cold or warmer climate, you know, down in Florida, Florida or something or Georgia or something, you might be able to just grow it as you would um, any other prunus. So those are our four. And we do have a lot more that we're looking at. Um, we have, you know, hundreds in the field of hundreds of hybrids that are, you know, in the range of 10 to 15 years old that we're doing some final evaluations on, and then we would propagate those and send those for evaluation and then make a final decision on. Hmm. And can the general public who visit the Arboretum walk those trial fields? Absolutely. Yeah. The whole, um, all our cherry fields are open to the public. You won't necessarily know what they all are, although a lot of them do have plant, you know, little metal tags on them you can read, but that may not even make sense what the code means, but um, you, everyone's welcome to walk the fields and, and it is a beautiful, beautiful time to walk. And if there's a little breeze and the birds are singing and the petals are falling on your head, it's yeah, definitely walk the cherry fields. Nice. And do you have any uh, preview you can kind of give us for that next introduction? I wish I did. <laughs> we're actually, we're looking at, a, at them right now. We're, we're working with um, nurseries too, because sometimes that's the best way to know even if we think a cherry might be incredible, if it's not going to make it, um, if a nursery grower can't grow it well and easily and, and sell it, then it's not going to make it in the trade. So um, we do cooperate closely with nursery growers um, when we make our final selections. So I don't really have anything. Um, there's not one that, that is in my mind that um, there may be a group of five to 10 that are in the top picks, um, including some of the um, columnar ones that we talked about and some of the um, shorter sort of more um, shrubby types. Those, those are definitely in the lineup of down the pike. Yep. Hmm. To be continued. And so if you see it with the first lady name, you'll know what came from the Arboretum's introductions. Exactly. Yep. Hmm. And so for the three we talked about that are Hardy, uh, Dreamcatcher, First Lady, and Helen Taft, are those readily available in the trade to the home gardener? Um, I think there there might be more available on from online resources. I'm not sure if you could just go to your garden center and ask for one by name and have it there. Um, but they are available retail um, at in some places, yeah. Good to know. And of course, you can go to the Arboretum and see them in situ, how they're growing at the Arboretum and take photos of them and check them out and kind of do some uh, preliminary shopping before you order it online. Yes, that's that's a very good idea. In fact, we have still ongoing our um, self-guided tour of the cherry blossoms and you can go to the Arboretum and you can either grab a paper copy of the tour guide or you can download it on your app and just um, go to the numbered trees and read about each um, the significance of each tree on this self-guided tour. So, and the benefit of that is that even though the tidal basin trees are probably getting, you know, they're nearing the end of their peak, they're probably on their way out right now. Um, the ones that the Arboretum, we're going to have plants that are still at their peak all the way through April because we have so much diversity of from the very early to the very late 
varieties. So um, you haven't missed it. If you didn't make it to the tidal basin, don't despair. You can still come to the Arboretum. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Dr. Pooler, because I have some out-of-town friends that were disappointed that they missed the weekend of peak bloom this year. And I said, peak doesn't mean end. You know, it's just 70% of the tidal basin blooms are opening, but they're still lasting for a couple of weeks, depending on the weather there. And then, of course, you have the different cherry trees in your collection that are early, mid, and late blooming. Yes, exactly. And yeah, like you said, peak doesn't meet end. But if you do live in the D.C. area and you haven't gone down to the tidal basin during peak bloom, you kind of have to do that at some point. You, you know, just find a day that maybe it's a weekday that the crowds aren't going to be there. And because um, it really is spectacular because it's it's everything is blooming all at once. It's almost overwhelming, but it's definitely worth worth seeing. Mm-hmm. I kind of my favorite point is kind of five to seven days after peak when a lot of the petals are falling. So you get that snow effect. Absolutely. And when they're falling, like our research fields, if you're out there, um, I really like the effect of after they've fallen and they're just on the ground. And so the ground, even if they're in grass, it's total pink. It's just because of the petals, once they fall, they still um, maintain their, you know, turgor and their, their pink color. So instead of just being dried up, they just sit on the ground and just turn everything pink. So it's like you said, it's like pink snow. Mm, So lovely. So if a home gardener wants to contact you or find out more about the breeding program, how would they do that? Um, They can just email me. Um, You can find me on the Arboretum's website um, or the Agriculture Research Services website. Um, You can just look for my name and if you have a question, um, you know, about our breeding program, or if you're a nursery grower, um, if it's a question about, you know, a specific tree that you have, I'd also encourage you to reach out to your county extension agent because they are fantastic um, at helping to diagnose problems and um, a wealth of knowledge. So I would definitely encourage you to get to know that person or those people if you don't already. Hmm. Good tip. And any final thoughts on growing cherry trees? Um, just do it. No. Um, yeah, they're, um, they can be kind of finicky and picky, but to me, it's sort of, they're worth it just because of sort of what they've become, what they've come to symbolize. And that is sort of the fact that they're, they're so, sh- the flower is so short lived that it is a constant reminder to just, you know, stop what you're doing and enjoy that because they're not going to be around forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That ephemeral nature is just such a beautiful thing to observe. It is. And just such a good reminder to, to, you know, about a lot of things. Thank you, Dr. Pooler. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Grape hyacinth plant profile. Grape hyacinths, muscari species, 
are among the first flower bulbs to bloom in the spring. They remain attractive for a long period of time in the garden. They are beneficial to many early bees and other pollinators. The tight grouping of small bell-shaped flowers held at the top of a long, thin stem resembles a cluster of miniature grapes, giving them their common name. The flowers are usually in shades of blue, although some are purple, pink, or white. They can also bloom in two colors, with the margins of the flowers often having a pretty white edging. Grape hyacinths are native to the Mediterranean and Central Asia. There are about 40 different varieties. They can tolerate spring frosts and are very easy to grow. Plant the muscari bulbs in the mid to late fall before the ground freezes. The bulbs are small enough to go in the same planting holes with larger spring blooming bulbs such as tulips and daffodils to make attractive combinations in both containers and in planting beds. They usually grow to a height of four to eight inches. They look especially good planted in groupings of a dozen or more placed closely together. Don't hesitate to pluck a few to place in a vase as they make great cut flowers too. Unlike most other spring blooming bulbs, the foliage emerges in the fall and stays up all winter into spring. The muscari bulbs multiply over the years so you can dig and divide them either in the spring after the flowers have died back or in the fall once the foliage is fully up. You can also buy grape hyacinths as pre-forced bulbs in pots in the spring. Enjoy them indoors or plant them in the garden for instant gratification. Grape hyacinth, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, my early tulips are blooming and the PJM rhododendrons are blazing up a storm. In the community garden plot, the seedlings are up for both the arugula and the red sail lettuce, but not a sign yet of our pea seedlings. And we planted some spinach and potatoes this week. In the local gardening world, a couple events to look out for include the Maryland Native Plant Society's monthly program this month on April 25th at 7 p.m. It will be available on Zoom and it is Ecological Gardening with Climate Change by Bethany Bradley as the program. You can sign up for that at mdflora.org. In person, you can attend some tours at the Arlington National Cemetery in Arlington, Virginia. They have a Memorial Arboretum walking tour available on Friday, April 14th. Meet at the Welcome Center kiosk. And on Friday, April 21st, there's a Memorial Arboretum spring plant tour in honor of Earth Day. Again, meet at the Welcome Center kiosk at 9 a.m. And then on Friday, April 28th, another Memorial Arboretum walking tour and this is on Arbor Day, and that walk will be from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. They recommend you wear sturdy shoes and consider bringing a bottle of water because there is a lot of hilly terrain and you will be doing a lot of walking. You can find out more about those events at the Arlington National Cemetery Arboretum's website. Happy gardening!
In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen, Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Get low-maintenance alternative to lawns with the new book, Ground Cover Revolution, by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in homeownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer-resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. This is The Last Word on Crabgrass Control by Jeff Rugg, author of Green Review Gardening, the owner's manual for anyone who takes care of a landscape, and the creator of over 250 horticulture videos on the Green Review YouTube channel titled Green Review. Have you heard the advertising for crabgrass control on the radio? Or have you been in a big box store recently where there are pallets of weed controls on display? Does your lawn have crabgrass? It probably doesn't. And even if it does, this is probably not the right time to apply a treatment. If you can see weeds in your lawn in late winter and early spring, they are not crabgrass because crabgrass is an annual that comes up from seeds later in the spring. Annual crabgrass seeds begin to germinate when the soil temperature four inches below the surface reaches at least 55 degrees for three to seven consecutive days. And new seeds continue to germinate for weeks until the middle of summer when the soil temperatures get up to more than 90 degrees. At the same time that crabgrass seeds begin to germinate, dandelions, forsythias, and redbud trees are beginning to bloom. Don't apply pre-emergence on a calendar basis. Wait until the soil reaches the proper temperature. If you don't want to measure soil temperature, watch for the redbuds to bloom. The soil temperature range necessary for seed germination varies by species. Pre-emergence work best when applied just before a weed species is due to germinate. Pre-emergence don't last forever, and if applied too early, they will not be available through the entire germination phase. 
This is especially true with crabgrass as the seeds can sprout over a three to four month time span. Follow the label directions on your pre-emergent package and realize it may be necessary to apply the product more than once during the growing season. But also remember that most lawns don't have crabgrass and applying a weed killer to a non-existent problem is wasting money and polluting your landscape. This was the last word on crabgrass control by Jeff Rugg, author of Green Review Gardening, the owner's manual for anyone who takes care of a landscape, and the creator of over 250 horticulture videos on the Greener View YouTube channel titled Greener View. Go to greenerview.com to find out more. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.